Hello and welcome to this Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Maria McCann. Maria's first novel, As Meat Love Salt, was published a decade ago to great acclaim. That book was set during the English Civil War, so it's perhaps fitting that her second novel, The Wilding, which Faber has just published, should be set during the Restoration. The monarchy has been restored, and on the face of it, life has regained a semblance of normality. But as the events of the book show, it is only a semblance. Under the surface, people are still living with what they did, or what was done to them, during the conflict. That is what Jonathan Diamond, the narrator of Maria's novel, is about to discover when the book opens. He's a young man of a good West Country family, who makes his living as an itinerant cider maker. But when a boy arrives late one night with a message from his dying uncle, the tranquil surface of Jonathan's existence is about to be disturbed forever. The first thing I asked Maria was what it was about the Civil War that had fired her imagination. It's the passion and it's the sense of possibility. I am still disappointed that we had the restoration, I think, Um, without being romantic about the Commonwealth period and the many things that were wrong with it. I do feel um, disappointed each time I contemplate the fact that we started again at stage one. Um, About the restoration, I think it's how you cope with unspeakable things that have been done. And of course, that's very much what the wilding is about. How you go about the rest of your life when you've been at war with your neighbours and sometimes with your relatives. And that, of course, is a phenomenon which persists down the centuries. I mean, are you conscious of... Uh, I know it's a sort of a much maligned word, but relevance, so that, that what you're writing about has some kind of relevance to contemporary concerns too. I know that some writers go out of their way in order to think through the relevance, you know, th- those kind of resonances before they start. I don't. <laughs> um, what happens is that my imagination is caught by a particular crisis, a character in crisis. As I start to think about what might that person have done or what might be wrong, I become emotionally bound up with that character. As I begin to think about the how and why the plot unfolds, as the plot unfolds, then larger, more abstract or theoretical concerns start to, it's a very odd thing, they start to be drawn into it. The image I have in my mind is of water going down a plug hole sucking in everything into a vortex. That's what I think of. That's what I see in my mind when I think about the process. It starts with the energy at the heart of it, which is the dynamic interaction between the characters, but other things get sucked into it as the fiction develops. Now, to begin at the very beginning, I have to confess, I didn't know what a wilding was before I read your book. So it might be helpful just to tell listeners what a wilding is. A wilding is the name given to an apple tree that springs up without being planted. So somebody has thrown a core somewhere or a seed has got somewhere and an apple tree springs up. Nobody's quite sure what it's going to be. It's described in the novel as a bastard apple tree. Mm. But some in some of these apple trees in cider districts have actually proven to be very good cider stock. You mentioned the novel is set in a cider district and the making of cider is absolutely central to the plot. Jonathan Diamond, the narrator, has a cider press, he goes, he's an itinerant um, cider maker. When did that become part of the imaginative world of of this novel for you? Well, actually, it wasn't the first thing. The first thing was what happens in the Guildhall, which obviously I can't mention in any detail, um, because it will spoil the plot for readers. But I needed some reason for my man to visit his aunt. 
And I had been interested in itinerant workers ever since I went to visit Thomas Hardy's house, Max Gate, and we were shown the plans of the house, which Hardy drew up himself, and there was a room there for itinerant workers. And when I asked who they might have been, they said, well, people who came to help with the harvest, maybe cider makers. Now, there is a Thomas Hardy poem called, I think, Lengthening Days at the Homestead, which is about an itinerant cider maker. So we know that they were there in the 19th century, and I did a little bit of research on these and found that they probably had with them a mechanised device for pulping the apples. Presumably the householders pressed it themselves. I'm not quite sure at which point these things fused together, and I had the idea of making John an itinerant cider maker. Something that's been asked a number of times is could he have had such a press? And the answer is, I don't see why not. Presses were constructed of elm wood. They didn't have a great deal of heavy metal on them. If you could dismantle one and put it together, I don't see why a horse and cart couldn't pull it. And pardon the pun, you must have immersed yourself in the cider making (laughs) process because there's lots of learning, very lightly worn, but nonetheless, you, you obviously know a lot about how cider used to be made. I did become very interested in 17th century cider making. It was immensely popular then, and writers sometimes look back to it nostalgically as being the golden age of British cider. But unfortunately, most of the cultivars are gone. And the one that everybody praised at that time was an apple called the Red Streak, which was supposed to give such superlative cider that it was every bit as good as wine. Now, there is an apple called the Red Streak now, but it's not the same. So we'll never know what that authentic taste was like. Yes, I did get very interested in the... um, I've got the Somerset Pomona at home with all the different photographs of all the different apples in it. And the fact that the southwest is unusual in the number of apples that it grows, which are especially for cider making, because I discovered in the southeast you tend to get more all-purpose apples. You don't don't get those particular pungent varieties that are for cider and cider alone. The novel begins with a letter. Tell me a little bit about what what that letter is going to lead to. That letter is going to lead to something which in a way is a murder mystery, but the novel is not really what you'd call a whodunit. It's a a process of disillusionment, a process of self-knowledge and growth, the ripping away of illusions that the hero has about himself and the dissolving of his smugness. He's a young man who is basically good, but he's in denial, like the rest of the country, about the reality of what England has been through in the civil wars. He's sure that his family have always been on the right side. He's sure that the right side would never do anything wrong. He's sure that he's in a completely different universe, as it were, from less fortunate individuals, the people who have the wrong beliefs, the people who are not comfortable. And he's living, he believes he's living in a pastoral idyll, although he would never use that word. Whereas the family saga, if you like, into which he's stumbling is something which is more like a gothic in some ways. And as you say, it's it's really about him becoming a man, isn't it? There's a, there's a, there's a lot in the book oh, yes. about, about being either a, a boy or accepting a man's responsibilities. And he mm. very much oscillates between the two, it seemed to me. Yes, that's right. I mean, he is in his 20s, but at the same time, craftsmen often didn't marry until they were in their mid-20s. They couldn't afford to. And until you had married, really, you were still pretty much at home with your parents. 
I got some flack from a reader online. I can't remember where I saw it, but it amused me a lot. It was something I saw on the internet, which said that this reader couldn't really take to him because he kept talking about breaking away from his parents, but he didn't, you know, he hadn't done it. And I thought, well, no, obviously not. You know, you don't continue to obsess about these things once you've done them. It's Mm. because you can't do them that you continue to talk about them to yourself. It's a bit like saying, you know, Hamlet, why doesn't he just sort himself out and get back to Wittenberg? (laughs) Yes, 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 exactly. Tell me, I'm intrigued in particular by some of the female characters in this book. And I wanted to ask you about Tamar, who's the um, who's the young woman who's portrayed on, on the cover of the book. Tell me about, about creating that character, because she, at the start, she's she's really is a complete mystery. She's kind of almost like a wild animal. She's compared to a, a fox by Jonathan. Tell me about what kind of young woman she is. Well, she's a young woman who has no patience with the illusions of a young man like Jonathan. But because of her lowly status, she's in a position where she can't show it. So she's like servants throughout the ages who have their private opinions, which may be quite acerbic, but are not able most of the time to reveal them, except to other servants. What is it about her that captivates Jonathan so much, do you think? I think it's the sense. He senses the lack of deference. It nettles him and exasperates him and and he does have a desire on one level he has a desire to help this young woman so she appeals to a compassion in him because as I said before he is essentially decent but I think also he has a desire to pull her into line he doesn't like it when she speaks to him too casually and he doesn't like that in anyone does he like he likes servants to know their place I think yes yes and and, and I think in in that he is just normal for Mm. his time there would be few people who wouldn't feel the same. Mm. Tell me about that, that ex- aspect of writing historical fiction, because you must quite often in your mind have the question, well, well, would they have mm. done this? Would oh. they have thought like <laughs> yes. this? Yes. How, do you, how do you deal with that? What, what sort of, do you have sort of ground rules? Yes, I do. Um, I, rest- I try to restrict always all the language and, and thought to what that character could have had in terms of their intellect and education. And that can sometimes get quite difficult. I have a, a longing to write a third-person omniscient novel which has an educated <laughs> narrative voice because it can be quite difficult to convey complex ideas, complex perceptions, situations in the limited language that is all you can allow yourself for a particular narrator. Sometimes as well you have to contain yourself and work only with well, basically, you're left with the framework of religion. Very often, re- religion and social class are all that you've got. Jon- Jonathan uses cider making as a simple metaphor for life. It doesn't take him very far, but he sometimes works within that, talking about apples going bad and doctoring cider and murk clearing and so on. Yeah. But it's a very limited metaphor. I, I do think it is a, a, a real... It is the real challenge. It's it's the most difficult part of it, in fact. In writing the part about, uh, in writing the chapter called Lovers of the Gentleman, I think it's in that chapter that I have a little bit of information about how people spoke about the devil mm. and how witches imagined that sexual intercourse with the devil might be or perhaps how their persecutors imagined it might be. And and that is that is all straight from accounts of the time, 
and it's extraordinary. It, 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 it begs more questions than it answers, really. Mm. Why would anybody want to do, want to do that, really? Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned religion and, and deference, and mm. there is a hint at one point in the book, because I think probably for modern readers, the religious interpretation of life is probably the most alien from, from most readers. And there is one point in the book where Jonathan does seem to be quite seriously questioning the accepted view of religion, where he talks about faithlessness i think so i suppose i suppose my question is is that you as a novelist poking through this mm. interpretative mm. sort of seal that that might otherwise be on on everybody's mm. mindset in the book i suppose it's a way of imagining how someone in a religious age might experience doubt who isn't quite able to take it to its logical conclusion and say there is no God. The nearest he can get is to say God is there, but I feel somehow cut off from him. Whereas in As Meat Loves Salt, I give Jacob a mystic experience. He's not able to understand it, and he is not. neither is his friend and lover able to interpret it for him, but he has it. I mentioned the female characters and I thought Aunt Harriet was a terrific creation and I imagined that she must have been great fun to write to mm. this this powerful domineering virago of a woman. Yes, she was. <laughs> it's always fun to write about what you dislike, um, to be able to inject venom into it. And yet at the same time, I had to only write things that I was comfortable about writing, if, if that doesn't sound too contradictory. So I do allow her moments when the loneliness and sadness of her life is glimpsed, mm. even by Jonathan, as she sits alone and he realises that she has nothing left in her life now except looking forward to death, and admits that there is a kind of bitter strength in her. She's done an appalling thing, which again we can't mention. <laughs> it's no excuse, but she has done it under severe provocation. It's not been completely wanton. She has done it as a way of solving what was developing into an intolerable situation for her and probably would have continued to get worse had she not had the inspired <laughs> evil idea that she could solve it in the way that she does. As you say, we don't want to give it away, but we're mm. talking about an event which occurred in the Civil War and which has ripples. In fact, the character Joan uses the, the phrase ripples of the war, mm. and it is one of the most sort of terrible ripples that mm. that goes down through the, the decades that, that follow it, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And this um, that part of the novel was actually based on a real-life event. It's the only incident in the novel which I consciously based on something that actually happened. <laughs> I was looking at a review the other day which said that the reviewer found this absolutely astonishing and um, I think was unwilling to believe it. And while it's no defence in fiction to say that something actually happened, it did amuse me that this was the only thing that actually happened that she had picked in the novel. The sources that I had about this incident I came across when I was doing the research for As Meat Loves Salt, and I didn't think at that time that I would ever use this thing in a novel, but I found it very painful. I did spend quite a lot of time thinking about it, because with the minimal information that I had, I couldn't work out how it had happened. And I concluded that it was to do with power relationships, that somebody had been defenceless and had crossed someone else who was very powerful. I can't, again, I can't say much more for fear of giving away the plot. 
But I did continue to think about it for a while. And when I finally decided to make it the basis of a novel, because this, in fact, was the seed of the novel and not Jonathan and his press. This was the imaginative seed of the novel. What would happen after an event like that? I discovered that I'd actually used the same name almost exactly as the name of the real-life victim. I had transposed a couple of letters in the name. Hmm. So it had, it had sort of somehow embedded itself it in you. It had lodged itself very deep, yes. It's an event of such brutality that it brings to mind something like, for example, the former Yugoslavia or some mm. modern-day mm. civil war mm. situation. So it's, 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 it seems mm. very modern in, in that kind of brutality. I think what's most terrible about it is the collusion, that it's not simply an act of violence, it's an act of collusion and scapegoating which takes place, which is, and, and later those who have benefited from it refuse to face up to what they've done or, or to take any responsibility for picking up the pieces. So again, it, it has echoes of the situations of occupation oh. or after mm. after yes. the occupation of France or the Spanish yes. Civil War, yes. people, people's minds sort of close against it and, and the, the outcast is, as you say, scapegoated. Yes, absolutely. I wondered, do you envisage writing historical novels with female narrators? There are clearly difficulties in terms of you know, autonomy within certain mm. societies, but is that, is that something that you can envisage doing in the future? Oh, yes. Um, the novel that I'm writing at the moment actually doesn't have a narrator, doesn't have a first-person narrator. But it has two narratives, one from the point of view of one woman and another from the point of view of another woman. So we don't get a male perspective at all in the mm. one that I'm writing at the moment, and it makes a lovely change. Mm. I don't want to spend my entire life impersonating men in print. I think in terms of As Meat Loves Salt, that particular story could not have it could not have happened to a woman and I've been asked why I made his lover male and partly it was because I needed somebody who could give him a really good fight and women were so systematically disadvantaged during that period that a woman could never have led Jacob the merry dance that Ferris leads him. It, would, it, it just couldn't work. She would never have stood a chance. In terms of this novel, I suppose that kind of gendered complacency is part of what I wanted to remove from Jonathan as well, because he's definitely, in, in terms of gender, he's, he's won the lottery. He's on the winning side, definitely, he's, and he hasn't thought about, really, about women at all, except that he knows that he doesn't want to... Well, the, the, actually, the one time when he comes close to being in a woman's position is when his parents are trying to arrange a marriage for him with a woman called Anne Huxtable, whom he thinks of with revulsion, and he absolutely refuses to countenance that that could happen. That's not going to happen to him. Yeah, it did seem to me that he did... He, In his position, sometimes he did occupy a slightly female role in that he wasn't the master of his destiny that he might have wished himself to be but was sometimes being deceived or being being pushed by by forces beyond his control well that, that's partly of course because although he fancies himself as a great plotter and um, manipulator and discoverer he is he is hopelessly outdistanced by the older generation throughout the novel he continues to speak of his father as being this very straightforward and innocent and plain person and in fact his father is while being benign his father is actually much craftier than Jonathan gives him credit for mm. yeah he does he does misread the situation quite often doesn't mm. he yes his, his father is um is a manipulator 
for for good mm. but he, there's there's nothing simple or helpless or innocent about his father he manages to get people to do things that he wants them to do you mentioned witchcraft a moment ago and that's that's i suppose a a female realm in the novel although again it's very it's very subtly it's not mm. it's not in the foreground is that something that you had to do a lot of research into in order to portray I did some, but I didn't want it to become a witchcraft novel. Earlier on, when you were asking me something, I said, I don't know why why people would do that when we're talking about witches and um, sex with the devil. And and what I meant to say, actually, and didn't make clear, was that the the experience is described as being so unpleasant that it appears to be totally unerotic. Why women would go in for witchcraft, why they would want to see themselves as having access to the devil, I can understand entirely. It, it's obvious, really, in terms of the disadvantage and you know the desire to, the lack of control over one's life. The less control people have own, over their own lives, the more they believe in the supernatural and in witchcraft. I did some research about witchcraft in the 17th century, but I, I kept it to the absolute minimum. I really didn't want it to become a, a novel about witches. It's clear in the novel that this witchcraft is a way of earning a living. There is no real supernatural power involved. Yeah, you say something nice about writing in the novel. You say a writer is always an unknown quantity, never more so than when the writer is a woman. But writing is something which has clearly has power in this novel in order to establish one's credentials or present oneself in a particular fashion. I thought that was a, an interesting insight. It's only by writing that one of the main victims in the novel is able to express the trauma of what's happened and the consequences. And I do tend to use writing this way. In As Meat Loves Salt, I used it um, as a declaration of love. There was a declaration of love made which could only be put into writing because the declarer couldn't face the trauma of of making that declaration and being rejected, so so put it away. Do I think that writing is a secret place? Yes, I suppose so. And and something with power. I mean, later in the novel, without giving anything away, there is a document in Latin, and and the yes. fact that the, the, the fact of that means it contains a sort of secret power too, doesn't it? Yes, I'm I'm interested in the relationship between grammar and glamour and grimoire, all of those connections from a time when writing was itself glamorous and secret and the importance of writing in spells and of writing down something and your signature, signing one's signature being an act, a performance which commits you to something, mm. all, of, all of those ideas. And a, and a proof of something, a proof of identity, proof yes. that you are who you, who you claim to be. Yes, Yes, you sign, Yes, you, you declare your identity by making a mark on a piece of paper. We're, we're so used to this now that we don't think about it. Let me ask you in conclusion, Maria. Do, do you think of yourself as a historical novelist, or is that is that a pigeonhole? Do you how do you how do you respond to that um, label? This is very difficult to answer because if I say that I don't think of myself as a historical novelist, people who do identify themselves as historical novelists can get upset. <laughs> Margaret Atwood has received flack for calling herself her, her fiction speculative fictions as though she were being snobbish by distancing herself from science fiction. I would say that at at present I am a historical novelist, but it doesn't mean that I would never want to write anything else. So watch this space. But the next one's going to be historical. The next one is historical, yes. But it's set in the 18th century, and I'm trying to edge my way slowly towards the present day. (laughs) 